0: You like that? That's good stuff. Well, if that's you, if you're coming in weary, troubled, broken, if you got, you got issues today and you think people are against you, well, I hope we have some words of encouragement for you today in the words of Nehemiah. But before we get there, I would like to just report back. Last Sunday, we had a kickoff for something we call Fight Club. We actually had over 200 men show up, over 200 men sign up. is our biggest sign up that we've ever had. And so we're excited to blast off in a 10-week journey uh, where we discipline ourselves, and we'll see how many of us are surviving at the end, but, uh, but that's, we'll find that out then. And as you heard, next Sunday is baptism. Now, I know since we've had a baptism, a lot of people have come to Christ, put your trust in Christ. Some did that just last week. And so our challenge to you is what God would say, what Jesus told us, is that once that we've made this sort of private decision in our heart, then then we go public with Believer's Baptism. where are in front of people. We are dunked underwater. And that's going to happen next week. If you haven't already signed up, but you have come to Christ, but haven't followed through with Believer's Baptism yet, next Sunday's your chance. We need to know that, though, because we need to talk to you first. And so we'd love it if you'd fill out a card, mark it Baptism, drop it at the information table, or you could do the same thing Online, or if you want to take the action, call us tomorrow. But but if you forget, just write the card out, and uh, and we'll we'll set up a time that we can meet with you and, and make that happen next Sunday. We'll have it right here. It's time change Sunday, so remember that. We all lose some sleep, but that's okay, right? We're gonna come here. We're gonna see baptism. It's gonna be a great, great, great day. We are uh, we're in a series. Man up! And last Sunday we talked about. David, Israel's greatest king, turning over the reins to his son on his deathbed, and his last words were to Solomon. His last words were actually, man up. He said, be strong. Show yourself a man and pursue God. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Act like a man is what that means. And pursue God. And we're going to go Today and finish out this series. Again, I said Nehemiah. But what I like to do sometimes is sort of put this in the whole context of the New Testament so you understand the storyline. So are you okay with that? I, I know some of you may not like this, but just hang with me at story time, okay? And we'll just cover the Old Testament real quick. You know, five minutes, hopefully. Well it's something like this, all right? So in Genesis, after Adam is created and then There's a flood and Noah, all that. In Genesis, God calls this man named Abraham to go. He lives in like Iraq and to go to Canaan, a land he's never been before. And then he does that. His name's Abram, changed to Abraham. And then God says, I'm going to make a nation out of you because you're following me. Abraham then has Isaac, and then there's Jacob. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, has 12 sons, and they later become sort of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the sons is named Joseph. He is sold by his brothers into slavery, and he ends up being taken down to Egypt. Through the providence of God, he raises up, Joseph does, to become the second most powerful man in Egypt, and then that brings us to a time when there's a famine. Jacob's family is in Canaan. They don't have enough food. Some of the brothers go down to buy food in Egypt. Joseph sees them, recognizes them. He sort of repairs the relationship. He says, yeah, you meant it for for bad, but God meant it for good. And then he arranges for all of Jacob's family to move down into Egypt and be taken care of. So that goes great for a while, but then Joseph dies, the pharaoh dies, and a few generations later, the pharaoh, the new pharaoh, makes the Israelite people slaves in Egypt. That slavery lasted 400 years. Then God called Moses, God called Moses to go back to Egypt and to lead his people out. So Moses does that. The ten plagues happen, that stuff. They cross the Red Sea. After that, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. That's when he receives the law, and then he writes the first five books of the Bible, Genesis and where we're getting all this stuff from. Then after that, on their way to the promised land, which is Canaan, they start sort of just wandering for 40 years in the desert because they the people refuse to trust God. Then Moses dies. So Joshua takes over and he's charged with going, crossing the Jordan, going into the promised land. He does that. The people settle there, but then Joshua dies. After Joshua dies, we enter into this cycle where the people drift from God and then there's the time of Judges, where God would raise up a leader, and then they would come back to God, then they would drift from God, come back, the time of the Judges. It's that point in history that our last series on Ruth was based on, where Ruth met Boaz, and they had a child. In the meantime, Israel, are going through this cycle, they're saying, hey, we need a king like other nations. So God says, okay, I'll give you a king. The first king he gives them is Saul, but Saul then drifts from God and doesn't follow God. The next king is David, which happens to be the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, but that was for if you were in Ruth. And then David takes over. He's the greatest king. And then last week we saw that David then passes on and leaves the kingdom to one of his sons, his tenth son, named Solomon. Solomon takes over, and then God charges Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem. There's never been a temple there. They've only had the tabernacle since the law was given that they went through the desert with, and now that's been in Israel, just kind of a tent-like structure that houses the Ark of the Covenant, and inside that, the Ten Commandment tablets. So anyway, that's all happening. Solomon builds the temple, an amazing temple, but after he builds the temple, Solomon also drifts away from God. God tells Solomon, hey, you know what's going to happen when your son takes over the, the kingdom of Israel is going to be divided ten families, ten tribes are going to rebel and they're going to be called the Northern Kingdom, or they are called Israel, and only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, will remain, and that will be called Judah, the Southern kingdom. So that all happens in the meantime there are, during those two divided king, the two kingdoms. They both have about 20 kings each. All of the northern king kings are bad. None of them follow God. In the southern kingdom, only about eight of their 20 follow God. So it's just kind of a, a dark time. And then God uses the nations around them to judge them when they follow after other gods, which keeps happening. First, the northern kingdom, Israel, falls. They fall to Assyria. Assyria takes them over and takes most of their people into captivity. But then Judah, they hung out longer. But then another power that came on the scene, a world power, Babylon, they come and they conquer Judah. They destroy Jerusalem and, more significantly, they destroy the temple of God. They take most of the people into captivity in a couple of different waves into Babylon. Now, when this happens, the prophets say, hey, this captivity is only going to last like 70 years, and then people will be allowed to come back to the kingdom. And as a, as a matter of fact, that actually happened. After 70 years, people started coming back. They were allowed to come back by Persia, who took over from Babylon in order to rebuild the, the, the city, and they actually, under Ezra and Zerubbabel, they come back and they rebuild the temple. So this is 70 years after it was destroyed. But some people remembered they lived long enough to remember the first temple, and after the, the second temple's finally completed under Ezra and Zerubbabel, the people who saw both were like, oh, not so great, you know, not so impressive. But anyway, so they continue. Now, while this is happening, right after the temple, while the temple's being built, Inners are this guy named Nehemiah. So, and so, by the way, just set this in context. Now, basically, what happens for the rest of the Old Testament until the coming of Jesus is the people go, they're regathered in Israel, but they're always dominated by a world power. The world powers we know in history that are all, by the way, named in the Old Testament, which is Babylon, then Persia, who took over. Nehemiah is working for the Persian king at Artaxerxes as we start our story. But then after that, Greece, and then after that, Rome, and then that sets up the coming of Messiah. If the captivity accomplished anything, here's what it accomplished. The people of Israel, God's people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they no longer followed after false gods. Once they're regathered, they pretty much stay on. Okay, we're with God and we're not going to do the false god thing anymore that we've been judged repeatedly through history. So that sets up Nehemiah. Are you ready for Nehemiah? Okay, Nehemiah. All right, so here we are. And uh, the temple has been rebuilt. Nehemiah has attained kind of a high position, serving as the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. You can look him up. He's in history. And so Nehemiah is serving him. Now, cupbearer is more than just being a waiter. A cupbearer also includes, besides making sure the king's food is good, that he is a, an administrative official, kind of a high administrative official in the government. He's also a confidant of the king. But it's pretty strict back then. I mean, when you were in the king's presence, you, you never looked downcast or sad or mad or anything else. It was all about you are serving the king. So Nehemiah one day, he hears, he's asking about how, how is everything going in Jerusalem. Some people come back and they tell him, well, the temple's built, but there are no walls around Jerusalem. And that really depresses Nehemiah, because he knows in that region for a city to, to cause have any influence, they had to have walls. All, all major cities were walled. That was to protect them from the people around them. That's how they had significance. And here Jerusalem with the rebuilt temple doesn't have the walls. The walls are still torn down. And so he is super bummed out about that. He's depressed. He's he's thinking about that. He's praying to God about that. He knows this is a situation that has to be rectified or the temple is going to end up being destroyed again. But all this area is all under Persian rule. So he is before Artaxerxes, and then he sort of makes a mistake. He's in the presence of the king, and he's looking sad. He's depressed. And Artaxerxes notices and says what's wrong? And right there, he's fearful because it's a capital punishment to be depressed in front of the king. You just, you don't do it. And so he, he's fearful, and, but then he just blurts it out. He says, you know, uh, uh, Jerusalem, my home city, the walls are destroyed. They've rebuilt the temple, but there are no walls, no gates around the city. And so then Artaxerxes very unexpectedly says to Nehemiah, what do you want? And Nehemiah, you know, he's shocked at that. Hey, he's not going to be killed. Actually, Artaxerxes is saying, what do you need? And so, unexpectedly, he's hit with that. So he throws up the quick prayer. How many of you have done that? Something happened. It just happened on the spur of the moment. You're like, oh, didn't, didn't see this coming. Hey, God, what do I do? Know what I'm talking about? Put him up there. I, I know you guys have. All right. Thanks for admitting it. All right. So he throws up the quick prayer. And then he goes for broke. He says, Artaxerxes says, what do you need? He says, send me your cupbearer to go to Judah, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls. And so he's taking a huge risk here. By the way, who tore down the walls? You know, the empire, right? And so, but Artaxerxes says, okay, okay, you can go. And then Nehemiah goes, and and by the way, and one more thing, if you could give me permission to go through all the provinces that I'll be passing through. And by the way, it'd really be nice if you'd give me permission to take some of the, some lumber out of the king's forest over in those areas so I can help rebuild the walls and the gates. And Artaxerxes says, okay, okay, you can do it. And so that sets it up. So Nehemiah is going to go now to Judah from Persia, and as he travels there, it's not all as good as it seems. Because Judah is surrounded by competing uh, what were countries. And so these other regional powers don't want Jerusalem to have any power, so they are against the wall being rebuilt. And so Nehemiah is walking into a situation where there is a whole bunch of opposition. And so that's how the story unfolds. And, and, And by the way, this is how it applies to us. A lot of times when we're doing what we think God wants us to do, or we're just flat doing what God tells us to do, we can experience, we can almost expect hostility and opposition. Opposition first, Hostility, second. Now, I'm not talking about um, like competition uh, where, you know, other people are doing the same thing and we don't like that. that uh, not talking about that. I'm not talking about complications where, hey, things get a little messy because we didn't think it all through. No, I'm talking outright opposition and hostility for us doing what God wants us to do. So the, the hostility here is huge. And the leader of the opposition, his name is Sanballat, and he kind of has a sidekick named Tobiah. And Sanballat and Tobiah are from just north of Judah. They're from the region of Samaria, and so they are sort of over Judah, because Judah's not strong enough to protect itself, and so he doesn't like it. But it's not just Sanballat and Tobiah. They're to the north But then he's got them all around. We're going to read about them in just a minute. You have the Arabs who came from the east now have moved in south of Judah. And then we have the Ammonites who were kind of with the Moabites. They're just east right across the Dead Sea from Judah. And then there are these other people called the Ashdodites that are west of Judah. They're along the coast of the Mediterranean where the Philistines used to live. And so all these people have surrounded Judah, all enemies. By the way, just like it is today with Israel, everybody around them, enemies. And this is the situation that he walks into. And we're going to start here in Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Nehemiah now has started building the walls. He's catching all this criticism and propaganda from political enemies, but he's continuing. Verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half of its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. All of them conspired together, to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So again, we got all these areas, these regions that are self-controlled, but actually under Persia. They all pay tribute to Persia. And they don't like the fact that now Jerusalem is becoming stronger because that will, in essence, dilute their own power. And so the enemies move from ridicule in this story to anger, to threatening violence, and then now to planning a violent attack in order to stop what's going on. So, here's the deal. How do we, how does Nehemiah, and, and by extension, how do we stand up, how do we man up in a hostile world? Well, we're going to learn from Nehemiah that what we need to do is pray And take action. I know that sounds simple, but with Christians, a lot of Christians only do one of those things. They either pray about it and do nothing, or they take action, but they never talk to God about it. Nehemiah's story is gonna show us that we should pray and take action, and not only that we should do both, that we should do them in the correct order. All right, so here we go. First of all, pray. For what only God can do. And here's how he responds. Verse 9, Nehemiah says, But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. See, Nehemiah not only does both, he does them in the right order, and throughout. And by the way, this is a pattern with Nehemiah. All through the book of Nehemiah, every time some new information comes, every time a circumstance Changes, every time he's presented with a new dilemma or problem, the first thing he always does is pray. He asks God about it. He comes to God with those issues. It's his pattern. He does it every single time. And so that's happening here. And basically, if you want to go back, you can back up and read. that prayer, but we're not going to go over that, but it's kind of a rough prayer. He's basically calling for God's judgment to come down on these nations. He's basically praying that they would be wiped out. He's basically praying that they would receive exactly what has happened to Israel when they have strayed from God. These people are opposed to what God wants done, so he's praying that for them. Not not the typical prayers you hear today. And that's where he's kind of coming from. But the reason he's doing that is because he's not seeing this as a threat to just him personally or that he's personally being ridiculed. He sees this as a threat to God's honor, God's city, God's temple. And and then he's seeing that as a threat. And and he's right. And so that's what kind of causes him to pray the way he prays. Now, We pray for what only God can do. And we know in the big picture, God controls everything. So we throw it up for God, and we give it over to Him first. And by the way, when we do that effectively, just like us, when we get crosswise with people or people oppose us, you know, sometimes people oppose us because we're doing the wrong thing. But when God opposes us, when people oppose us for doing what God wants us to do, then Hey, we take that to God. We pray. And, wh- and we can't, right? We pray first. We give over to God what we can't change, right? We can't change people's feelings. We can't change people what they think. We can't change people's behavior. When it comes against us, we really, we, the things that we can't control, we give that over to God. So pray first. The second thing is that we don't stop at praying, we pray, but then we buckle up and we take action. We pray to have God do what only God can do, but then we take action to do what we can do. Now, Sandballot here is, usual, is using political propaganda to discourage the people. First, it's with ridicule, and then it's with threats of violence. And then it's a plan to attack the city that the people become aware of. So all this is political propaganda against God's people. And by the way, that still happens today, right? There's political propaganda against Christians today. And you see it all the time in our media. And so I don't want to just throw that out without fleshing that out. Because some of you are going, I don't know. Just think of all the times where it's just hard for people in the media to show Christians in a sympathetic light. And so to show that, I'll use the extreme. Uh, All around the world, there are Christians being persecuted and killed for their faith today. But we don't really hear about that. We don't hear about Christians being killed. When other groups uh, are are facing genocide or something, we hear all, all about it. And we should hear about it. But when Christians are faced with issues like that, for example, in China and other places around the world, we hear nothing about that. Because it's like many in the media, or most of the media, they don't want to show Christians in a sympathetic light. Maybe a great one example of that is a couple of years ago, um, almost two years ago, when some, sui- some Muslim extremist suicide bombers blew up the churches on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka I don't know if you remember this but if the news covered it at all no mention of Muslim extremists but then the other thing is no mention of Christians actually we had some of our leaders saying things like this hey there was an attack not by who on Easter worshipers it's like they couldn't bring themselves to say the word Christian. And multiple people did that. What is that? It's the media not wanting to bring Christians, show them in a sympathetic light, especially evangelical Christians. And and I think some of that uh, propaganda is because there's kind of a fight over traditional family values in our country. And so Bible-believing Christians hold to family values and a lot of people not everyone that's not christians but a lot of people who are not christians do not hold to family values that's in competition we see that in different very popular political organizations today and so there's this tug of war because a lot of those people that that don't want traditional family values promoted then those people sort of propaganda deliver propaganda that's against christians because they know christians Uphold those things. Does that make sense? Because it happens every day, and and it's not a lot of times it's not blatant. The word Christian is not used, but you just see the movement in our country. You just got to know the reality. And so Christians are usually portrayed negatively. Now, if it's a negative story, they'll use the word Christian. You know that, and and they'll portray Christians as haters. You know, and, and people who don't want other people to have rights and that's not who Christians are. I believe in Christians are people who love God and secondarily love everybody else. We love people, but in order to love people, we feel that we need to tell them the truth, and that's what God has told us, and so that's why we say, hey, we think this is better. We think traditional family is better, because God says it's better, And, and so we catch a lot of Hate, you know, for that, and people see that almost today. You know, that's hate speech now. That all that's happening that way. So you just got to see that. Hey, Christians aren't wanting to take rights from people. We want to help everybody. We love everybody, but to love them, we tell them the truth. You know, and not everybody likes that. So you know, we we get it. And and by the way, we're not trying to force people to do things our way. God doesn't force people to follow him, and we don't force people to follow God. We just want to love them, tell them the truth, point them to God. They could do whatever they want. Now, so the propaganda against God's people here in Nehemiah's day, it works. So here's what happened next in verse 10. Thus, in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there's much rubbish And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, now they're quoting their enemies. This is the propaganda. They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times, they'll come up against us from every place where you may turn. They're going to be all over us, they're saying, right? So the people of Jerusalem are getting weary. They're saying, we, we don't know if we can keep doing this. Remember, the walls have been torn down. It's been 70 years. So outside the walls and stuff, it's just rubbish of broken rocks that have been knocked down. So you can't walk through it. You know, and they're getting those out and re- using the old stuff to rebuild the walls. It's hard work. It's discouraging. Now they hear all the propaganda and they're starting to get f- afraid. They're starting to wonder if they can do it. And, uh, and Nehemiah takes some action. He puts the people, he calls the people together, and he stations them by family around the walls, and he tells them to arm themselves. And so they're stationed by families all around the wall. And then he especially makes sure that their arms can be seen in the lower parts of the wall so people outside know, oh, these guys are armed up. So it's not going to be so easy to come in and, and wipe them out. And so he does that. So he has, And then he says, hey, now while you're working, I want you to arm yourselves. So if some guys are working, some guys are going to stand guard with arms. Other people will work with one hand, and they'll carry a weapon in the other hand. Other people that need two hands will have a sword strapped to their side. That's what Nehemiah says all through this. And then it continues in verse 13 then i stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall the exposed places and i stationed the people in families with their swords spears and bows and so when he gets them all set then he gives them an encouraging speech are we ready for an encouraging speech you know that's always good right then he gets their attention he stations them they're kind of in defensive positions but they're ranked by family they're there in their different spots in the wall and then he he gives this, this thing, verse 14. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people. And here's what he says Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That's what he says. That's his rallying cry. And it breaks down into three sections there, right? First, do not fear. And he says that because Nehemiah has a problem. The people are, are starting to lose it, they're discouraged. They're tired, they're stressed, and now they're becoming paralyzed with fear because of all the things that are being said around them. So the propaganda is working, they are paralyzed, they're, they're losing it. And Nehemiah pauses the work, he puts them in strategic defense positions, and then he encourages them. And the first thing he starts with do not be afraid. And that's pretty good, although we might ask, why? We got enemies all around us. And then that's the second thing. Do not be afraid. Second, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He points them, hey, do not fear. Remember, God is here. This is God's work. It's what God wants us to do. He's saying, remember God. He's great. He's awesome. And and it's the same way with us today, right? When we become discouraged or stressed out or things go bad or even fearful for whatever, because of opposition or, or whatever, what do we need to do? We need to stop and we need to do not fear what? Remember God. I know for me, and probably the same for you. Like, I'll go to bed at night and I'll just lay there thinking of God's faithfulness and all the good things that God has done and all the good things God has done for me that I don't deserve any of them. Good things. I mean, first, and I'll go back and remember this, you know, first, He allowed me to even see Him. That I would understand anything about God so I could follow God. He allowed me to come to God. He he allowed me to become a believer. And then after that, I, I can see all through where God has protected me and given me provisions and provided for me and all these things. All through years and years, decades and decades and decades. And when you see God's faithfulness like that, his greatness, then it causes us to not fear. Hey, What's Scripture tell us? If we've become a believer, God is with us. God will never forsake us. God will always be with us. God will always love us. Nothing can change God's love for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, nothing So why would we fear? Why would we fear? If God's on our side, in the context of doing what God wants us to do, that who can be against us? Do not fear man. Keep following God, is what he's saying. And then third here, he says, fight for your family. He said, hey, fear not. Remember God And now, don't be passive. Fight. And and by the way, here when he says fight, he means literal fight, right? With weapons, he's saying fight for your family. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Stand up and fight, he's saying. That's what he's telling them. And we're, we're, as men especially, we are called to physically protect our family fight if we have to fight you know okay to arm ourselves. I'll get all into that but you know it's okay to bear arms in our country we get to do that we are charged with protecting our family physically but it's more than that we're charged with protecting our family in other ways as well we want to protect our kids for example From the lies of our culture and and the world system around us. That they don't just follow, you know, whatever the new fad is. That they think through all those things through a biblical worldview. That's on us as parents. We protect them in that way. We want to point them to God. We hope that one day that they will give their lives to God. Like, if we're Christians, we have done. And not only are we called, by the way, by God, to protect our families, which we are, especially as men, we're called to that. We're also called to protect the weakest people, the defenseless in our society. We want to do that. Not only here in our country, but around the world, we want to protect the weakest, the defenseless. And we here at Grace, we take that seriously, as you know. So what's happening here? It's man up. How do we man up? First, we pray. Second, we take action. When we take action, we fear not. We remember God. We fight for our families. That's what he's telling us. That's what he's calling us to. Now, as the story goes on, Nehemiah keeps making plans. He prays again. He challenges the people, and they, they, they take action. They defend themselves. They arm up. And then that prevents a conflict, which is so often true, and they're able to rebuild the walls. And so where does that leave us? Hey, number one, when we're doing what God wants us to do, expect opposition. And if you keep doing it after opposition, and you should, expect hostility. It's just the world that we're living in. Keep loving people back, but we expect hostility and we can defend ourselves. You know, sometimes it just comes to, to taking action. It's so easy to be passive. But in all these texts, man up, you know, the third, third Sunday of man up, it always involves taking action. Men stepping up and taking action. Not that women can't do that too. We step up and take action. We protect provide, initiate. You know, God's called us to these things. But it's easy just to kind of sit back and let the world kind of go and not become involved. I'll give you a perfect example. I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, but baptism. So once we come to the place in our lives where we understand that we're sinners, we've done wrong against God like everybody else in the world, and we get that, but then we understand that God loves us anyway, and He makes this way, but it's only on His terms. And that is Jesus died on the cross to pay for our personal sins, all of them. But we have to trust Him. We have to put our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for that to count for us. We don't deserve it. We just have to admit it. And when we do that, we become believers. And so now in this room are a whole bunch of people who have become believers. It's just by faith. You didn't have to do anything. But now once we become believers, God tells us to follow him in believers' baptism. That means when we become believers, that's sort of a personal, private thing that happens in our heart. You know, sometimes I'll ask people, like last Sunday, to, to show me that they did that so we could pray for them. But, you know, it, it's a personal thing. But then God says, hey, once you've made this decision... As a believer, you are to do something public. You're you're to make a public declaration that you're a believer. And you do that in a church, and you do that by water baptism, allowing yourself to be dunked under the water in the name of Jesus. And that's what we're doing next week. And so if you have come to Christ, trusted in Christ, know you're a sinner, understand Jesus died for your sins, and you put your faith in him, Jesus, for doing that, Then the next step God says the next step is baptism even Jesus got baptized and we want to help you take that next step and so we have some people signed up but a lot of people that I know should sign up haven't signed up yet so I just encourage you don't be passive, take action stand up, do the right thing go public with your faith and so if you want to do that, you can just grab one of the cards, put your name on it and your phone number and check baptism. Drop it at the information table after the service. We'll contact you. Or you can do all that electronically. If you're more sophisticated than I am, you could just do that. Either way. And we'll include you. Because we need to have a meeting with you before you get baptized. It's just a 15, 20-minute meeting. And so we'll arrange that for you. Or you could just call into the office tomorrow, but, but don't wait until Friday. Don't wait till Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then, then you'll be working. and it, just, just do it. Just follow through. Go public with your love for Jesus. And there's always going to be resistance to following God. And some of you, maybe you haven't gotten baptized. What will my family think? What will the? Let that go. Do what God wants you to do. Don't be afraid. Remember God. Stand up. Make it happen. So I'd encourage you to follow through in that way. Remember, so next Sunday, we'll have the baptismal pool right up here on the platform. We'll do baptisms, both services at all of our campuses. And so that's going to happen. And it's also time change. I already talked about that. So buckle up. You know, be ready. Yeah, we lose an hour of sleep. Get over it. Don't make it up here. All right. So we're going to make that happen. All right. Let's stand up. And one last thing as you're standing is next Sunday we're starting a brand new series called The Greatest Week in History. And after we get that started, we're going to invite the whole community to come and be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, your love. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, those of us who are believers, God, we look back on our life and we just see blessing, blessing, blessing. That doesn't mean our life's been easy or that everything always went the way we thought. But, Lord, we see your hand in your protection and provision for us, God, and we confess that and we thank you for it. Father, help us to be who you want us to be. God, help all of us in this room now walk out of these doors and do what you would want us to do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.